Hello and welcome to another episode of the Bench Units podcast. Um, I am here joined as always by Mark Schofield and Mark, we're joined by a guest. We are, you're not wrong. We are joined by, I think I've had a kick around at throwing some of these words in. I feel like we can't introduce you and just say a legend because we said those words to you before we even hit record. Uh, we're joined by probably the only person who's ever tried to get out of recording by telling us that their restaurant is too successful to spare us an hour of their time. And that's post gold medal winning basketball career. So welcome, Brad Ness. Thank you for joining us, man. It's a pleasure to have you here. Thank you, fellas. And uh, yeah, appreciate uh, you giving me the opportunity to come on and uh, get behind what is probably going to be the world's greatest podcast <laughs> maybe 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 a very niche corner of the world in people who care about wheelchair basketball or will we go for disability sport but you get to be a part of the the niche corner of our niche corner in that the australian guests seem to do really well our two most listened <laughs> podcasts are yannick and tom so yeah. let's see if you can let's see if you can break into that top two you need you need I'll to not- Need to hit those top three, and we don't we don't give away the secrets here. But the reason that Tom's episode did so well is because he announced he was looking to return to Europe. So, if you want to get yourself up there in the listens, we could always um, we could have a Brad Ness returns to Europe scoop, and we can Jeez. we can publish that bit. <laughs> well, I'm actually getting my first new chair next week uh, since since Rio because I actually can't fit in my Rio chair anymore. So. Uh, <laughs> oh. I don't. I might be looking for like a second division team or something, maybe. But uh, yeah, no. thanks for the offer, fellas. But I'm I'm happy where I am at the moment. You just got to go to a team that's content to throw you the ball in the high post and get you there in the first place. There's plenty of players that don't need don't need to move a whole lot. You could just be one of those. It's yeah. fine. But I'm oh, not one of those. I am one of those. I don't go past the uh, three point line to three point line. Basically, yeah. if I get if I get now, if I get to the foul line, I've gone too far. I've, I've gone too far. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's one of those where you're like, I'm not getting back. It's fine. Nah. You, play, you play in the old Terry Bywater pattern where you just push top of the arc to top of the arc. <laughs> I, I only do that too if I've got two blokes picking for me to get up the court as well. So <laughs> yeah, let's not forget those little lows that have got to do that. The grunt work. I was going to say the mandatory three point, the three mandatory three man weave just to get you to the elbow. I like that. <laughs> but all right. So anytime we have a guest on, we like to take it right back to the very beginning. So could you tell anyone who's listening who doesn't know how you got involved in wheelchair basketball? If you want to talk about your disability, how that came about, go ahead. Floor's yours. Oh, I mean, look, I grew up on a Wheat and sheep farms. I think we had about oh, six, seven thousand acres, fifteen thousand head of sheep, um, and basically I was about ten minutes away from my nearest neighbour. So, yeah, pretty, pretty. Rem- well, I wouldn't say remote because there's blokes that live in the middle of Australia on stations that are you know million acres big. But um, yeah, grew up in the bush, and and when you went into this into the like, town, you actually played a lot of different sport. Um, and you played against kids older than younger. So if you were younger and you wanted to get a get your hands on the footy or you know, whatever, you want to be included, you want to be picked, um, you had to go out and fight for it. So I think, you know, without knowing, I just was brought up in an environment where um, you had to be competitive, otherwise you didn't get didn't get to play with your mates, sort of thing. So um, then we didn't have a high school, so I had to go away and board. Um, and again, being a boarder, you just always, you know, you didn't do schoolwork, you, you're always out kicking a footy or or doing something. So sports been always been a big part of my life. And then when I finished school, uh, I wanted to go and play AFL. 
um, which is Australian rules football. And yeah, I got I was lucky enough to go get picked up by a second division team that was like a feeder to the to the pro leagues. And I wouldn't have made it to the pro leagues. I mean, that's a you know, let's be honest, but you can you you can, you can dream, certainly dream to go for it. And so I took a job working on um, the Rottnest Ferries now, Rottnest Islands, just off the West Australian coast, where they have those beautiful little animals called the quokkas that everyone wants to try and get a photo with. And yeah, I just had the dream job going to and from the island every day. Um, I mean, let's be fun. I was 17, 18 at the time, so all the hottest chicks in Perth would be going across the island and, you know, free ticket there, here, there, anywhere, you know, because you're always on the lookout. And um, But it was just great. And and in summer, where would you rather be? On, on an island, right? So even on our days off, we're over there. But um, we used to do a lot of hours back then. Safety wasn't paramount. And so the weekend of when I'd come unstuck, I'd actually work 37 and a half hours in two days. Wow. And what happened long and the short of it was the skipper thought he was clear to leave the jetty. Um, we went and the rope that I was manning, uh, I un- untied on the on the vessel and as we pulled away, the rope was still attached to the jetty so it was going out through a hole about that big and as I was turning to try and get his attention, I put my foot in the rope and it tore my foot clean off. And, <laughs> um, yeah, wrong place, right time, right place, wrong time. Who knows? But we had a paramount. We had these guests. We had about two hundred guests on board, and um, yeah, they. It was eleven thirty at night. Foot was obviously in the water. I now say Rotto is now a foot deeper, and uh, but they never found it, which I'm grateful for. But they actually did first aid on me, so they tell me you die in about five minutes, and they kept me alive for a couple of hours before they got oh, me wow. back. They couldn't get me back on a chopper or anything, so we ended up, I had to go back on the boat, laying on the back deck, and. A part of the passengers that were on that night just happened to be a emergency response group from a, from a mining company, and so they kept me alive. And I got back in the hospital early Sunday morning, operated Monday, came to, realised that, and I already realised my foot was gone, but they'd amputated to below my knee. And, um, yeah, 12 days in hospital, got out for Christmas, back at work within 12 weeks, back on the boat yes. within six months and back into it. So oh. I wasn't going to let the accident I, I, I suppose my mindset was I wasn't going to let the accident dictate who I was and, and what I was going to do. So, yeah, pretty full on. Um, but I got my skipper's ticket, started working, but then realised I was missing something really important in life, and, and that was sport. So I tried to swim. Well, I could swim. Uh, got pretty far in swimming, but um, a bit like a shot duck, really. I was sort of going around all over the place. And But I missed team sport. And, yeah, it's amazing you know, one of the things I try and install, especially in younger younger generations, is, yeah, you know, like you guys have given me the opportunity here to hear my story. Um, yeah, you know, I, I challenge everyone that when someone's actually talking to them to, to, to listen and, and listen to have what, what they have to say because you don't know what information that person's going to give you or how that person might shape your life in the future. Yeah, you might have seen someone and then a few years later you cross their path again you go, oh, yeah, that's right, you you're the one that told me this sort of thing. And so this guy was ringing the, the house saying, oh, would Brad play, come and play wheelchair basketball? And I was like, no, nah, mate, I'm not playing wheelchair basketball. I don't need a wheelchair. Yeah, rah, rah. And I kept hanging up on him back then. We didn't have mobiles. That's how long ago it was. Or mobiles were just starting. And um, he was ringing the house. And um, anyway, in the end, I was like, I'm going to get this bloke off my back. I'll just go and have a go down to training and turned out it was Billy Mather um, Brown who was one of our original Paralympians from 1960 from the original Paralympic um, Games in 1960 in Rome. So if I just listened to him, I would have 
probably got into the sport a lot quicker because in this you know good year year and a half had passed. So um, went down there, got out on court, some bloody hat cleaned me up. I'm looking at the ceiling and I get up seeing red. And I'm like, oh, it's got to be a foul. And they're like, no, nah, Brad, that's in the rules. So I spent the next hour chasing around trying to get him and I couldn't catch him. I was like, right, I found my sport here. I'm going to I'm gonna get this bloke. And, um, yeah, spent the whole pre, pre-season pushing around this place called Lake Munger. And by the time I got back, it would be dark. Everyone would have gone and I had duck shit all up my arms from where I couldn't see where I was going. And, I had no skin left on my hands and and I, I just loved it. I just I just loved the challenge of it. And then they someone told me something really stupid. Um they said, take your basketball chair to the shopping center and and push a trolley around with, you know, so you had to learn to use one hand. And I'm like, <laughs> man, people are cleaned up and you know, me and missus with little kids and stuff. But I mean back then that was how you learned to do stuff, right? Um so yeah, it was just a, it was a matter of trying to learn the learn to use the chair and and I just found a, a, a real an, an instant appreciation and love for the game that it was just so hard and um some of the old blokes were just the most crustiest, hardest blokes I've ever come across. And you know, to be able to go out and 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 just play a sport, you know, and and not have not have there was no segregation. There was nothing. You know, as you boys know, right? The disability just it disappears. It just it's just yeah. a it's just a beautiful sport, and um, and I suppose that's why I loved it. That's that's amazing. There's something that jumps out anytime we interview someone who's either a three, five, four, or a four or five. They're always the story always starts with someone being like, "Come and play wheelchair basketball," and then being like, "Nah, I'm not one of those guys." And it's so funny every time. Yeah. Every time you, a single amp or a double amp in any and and of any kind is like, nah, I don't want to do that. And then you always <sighs> invariably fall in love with it. But something I wanted to ask, you mentioned very early on playing sports before your accident when you were a kid, that you had to like sort of scrap and fight tooth and nail just to even get picked or to get a hold of the football. Do you think that's something that kind of stuck with you as a wheelchair basketball player? <laughs> Yeah, I, I think the, I think we know the answer is yes, but I just wanted. Yeah, to... it did. I'll, I'll tell you a story. So I, I made my debut for the Australian team in '99 uh, over at the Roosevelt Cup, which is now no longer, which is a shame because it was such an unreal tournament and um, in the middle of nowhere there outside of uh, Georgia, Atlanta. And I get subbed in, and Troy Sachs is at you know the height of his of his game, and it's an inbound. So I take off down the court and I turn around. And I'm just coming over halfway when Troy throws this tracer bullet pass at me. And in football, when you lead out to, to mark the ball, you sort of wrap it up on your chest sort of thing. Ooh. As the ball's coming at me, I, I just I just went straight into football mode and wrapped <laughs> it up on my chest like I'd taken a mark. And then I was like, oh, shit, what do I do with it now? And, um, yeah, that was sort of like my introduction to, to playing wheelchair basketball. I mean, you didn't want to drop the ball with Troy because it, it either, you know, take your head off or knock you out of your chair. So, um, yeah, that was my introduction. It was my football skills that come into play. I think it saved me. <laughs> Yeah, good hands, to be fair. I think the good hands that come with that is fairly transferable. You've yeah. mentioned Troy there. Can we get a gratuitous Troy story, please? Oh, <laughs> Every time you mention someone, I'm just going to be like, give me a, <laughs> give me a story for this guy, because I oh, think I... that's what the people want. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Troy had, Troy, he went to America and, and to all the Americans out there, you know, I, I apologise now, but he, Smack Talk really didn't, exist and um troy went to america college and came back and he just had 
that as much as he, he revolutionised the tilting and, and all of that um, and really took, I suppose, the game to another level. Um, I've only, you know, there's been a few people that have done it. You know, Paddy's another one, um, just with his phenomenal skills. And, but, you know, Troy with his tilting. And back then we didn't have the back wheel, right? So, you know, the way people like Paulie Schulte could could handle their chair and break by going into a wheelie while, while handling the ball and that just blew your mind. And, um but Troy came back to the smack game, and he and he had he had something for everyone. And um, oh man, I was on the I was on the receiving end of it many times. And um, but yeah, he loved telling opposition players that they were on his island when they played when they played back in Australia. He's like, "You're on my island," because Braveheart had just come out. Same <laughs> from you're on my island, you know, and yeah, so he carry on like that. But um, yeah, the thing about Troy, he never drank, and um, so at the end of tours. Um, yeah, he just didn't drink, and I'd, I'd always try and slip a bit of body into his drink or something, but he'd be straight <laughs> onto it. But he was the he was the best bartender. He would happily, happily be the bartender and get everyone else off chops um, as long as he didn't have a drink. So, yeah, yeah, as much as some people didn't think he was a team man, no, he was a team man through and through, right to the very end. <laughs> I didn't, I didn't know he didn't drink. That's, I don't know why that's interesting. Maybe it's just a stereotype of the Aussies, but that's that's cool. <laughs> I made up for it. Don't worry about that. Yeah, I was going to say, you're like, okay, we've got enough drink for 12 and there's only 11 of us. Everyone chip in. That's teamwork. Brilliant. Um, Brad, just to, to loop back a little bit, you mentioned, this kind of feeds into one of our questions, but you mentioned how we didn't have the anti-tips on the chairs back in your in your kind of early days. We have a question here about um, kind of how the game was different in your early years, I guess, through to kind of your Aussie debut versus what it is now. Is the the chairs component of it the biggest difference as opposed to kind of what's been happening in terms of skills development or tactically or anything like that? I think the, the, the skills have changed with the, with the, the development of the chairs and, and, and people say, oh, the game hasn't really changed much. Well, you know, I, I, you sit back and you think about the evolution of the, the wheelchair basketball chair. Um, you know, when I first started out, there was no strapping, there was no back wheel. So, you know, someone clipped your back wheel, you just went flying. And I used to actually try and see how many blokes I could, you know, <laughs> no offence to your low pointers, but, you know, you take out a low pointer and he'd go one way and the chair would go the other and you'd just see how many of his shoes were stuck in the, in the foot plate. <laughs> <laughs> I know it's pretty bad, but yeah, we'd always have a bit of a laugh, or you'd have to go and get some bloke's shoe because you know it'd be like a car crash. But the game was really slow because everyone, you know, every time someone fell out, you know, they fell out and they couldn't get back in the chair, and you'd see blokes trying to, you know, it'd be like that, just just out of finger reach to be able to get their chair. And I mean, look, it was great, but it was it was slow. But then the fifth wheel came in. And that really helped me out. I remember getting my first fifth wheel chair and spinning on a top and falling out backwards and cursing and, and going on. But the fifth wheel changed. But even back then, you if you were a four and a half, you could have a strap. But if you let, let's say you're a four and you strapped in with a couple of straps, that would then take you up to a four and a half. And really? same as like two and a half to three. So depending on what strapping you had, also had a, so they'd give you the class card and you'd have all your straps on there. So they'd check to make sure you weren't illegally strapped in so yeah they did away with that thank god and that changed and then um and with the fifth wheel it allowed us to bring the back axle forward uh then we obviously started using side guards so um and the chairs were straight up and down uh so then with that then then came quad rugby and the six wheels and that's 
transitioned over. But the problem was when they first started with the original six wheelchairs, because back in the day, they to get the effect almost of what the six wheelchairs do now, um, some people used to play with one wheel at the front to get the spin. But then, of course, any contact you had, the, the chair would tilt and, fall, and you'd fall out. So we started using our front casters at about 26 to 28 um, centimetres wide. So we'd have them in as close and that allowed us to tilt. And I think one of the biggest things that's been lost to the game at the moment, not many people are doing it, is the tilt. Um, it's sort of dying out a little bit. But, you know, with that, we had the front ones sort of in close and the fifth wheel. Then the six wheels came, but then they, they had the six wheels too narrow. They didn't have them spaced out near the back wheels. So it would actually counter. So when you try and turn, it would grab and, and like flick you out. So it took a while for them to work out to like push the six wheels out to as far as they could. And that's when we started to get it. And you, know, you, you had much more maneuverability. And then, of course, with the side guards, we started the taper on the chairs. So the side guards came in and moulded your legs so you could really start to, you know, for the high pointers. And, and look, you know, before you get stuck into me, your lows and your mids, you know, I've seen the lows use their elbows and that on the wheels to be able to, you know, break and stop and turn. Um, so, yeah, it's all horses for courses really. But, yeah, the side guards really started to make a difference once we started using the taper. And then, of course, the skills started to catch up and, yeah, like I've seen chairs with the back axle brought forward to, you know, almost 26 centimetres from the backrest post 24, gets to a point where the chair, when it spins on its own, will actually go backwards instead of front, frontwards. So I think they've pushed the technology, but, of course, now RGK have come out and, um, yeah, they're now starting to go with carbon fibre, you know, um, you know uh, camber bars and, and stuff, so the chairs are getting lighter, Um yeah, how much more they can sort of do. You know, obviously now we've got the bucket seats, which, yeah, the boys tell me are it gives you a left and right ability to be able to go off the dribble. So that over the, I suppose, the 20-odd the years, the chairs have evolved big time. And But with that, so is the skill. So, you know, the, the, the transition game now, like the guys, you know, some of the guys have got insane handles, like, yeah, I mean, for me, I've been blessed, right? I, I got to play with a guy called the late Sandy Blythe, who was captain of the 96 gold medal team as a point guard. Went away to America, got to play with a play with Paulie Shilty, who, you know, was just phenomenal uh, as a shooting guard. And then, of course, you know, um, well, then Hussein Adari, who was just lightning quick um, and just an amazing chair. Like, the way he could tilt and do stuff was incredible and uh, and then, of course, Sean Norris. Um, you know, you know I, I suppose I've, I, if, I've, if there's four better point guards out there, I'd love to know them. And, um, but to be able to play with those guys and see their skills and how they evolve with the chairs and that as well, um, yeah, it's been, it's been unreal. And I, and I think now with the game especially, I think the NBA has had a big input, a lot more threes being put up now. Like back in the day, you, play, you could play a season and maybe see one three hit. Now it's... Yeah, if you can't shoot the three ball, you almost don't get picked. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's a case if you see Landilla rolling out there and shooting 23s in a game, which is kind of, I wonder every so often, obviously there are differences in that. There are no like catch and shoot stationary threes really in the wheelchair game bar, a handful of guys. But I wonder if that's where the game goes in the next 10 years. Like, do you see teams shooting 33s a game? And because that's kind of the NBA really took off 10 years ago by people going, hold on a minute. This one's well, worth more than that one in there, but obviously there are differences. 
Yeah, I look, I hear I might be talking out of turn here. I might have got a bit wrong. So some Canadian of yesteryear might might contact you, but I'm pretty sure they had the um they had a play called Corner Shop and uh the ball would swing. And yeah, you you're so help you're so bloody full on trying to stop Patty. And then obviously you had Joey coming in monstering you on the other side with, with Bear. And then dirt, bloody dirtbag, Duripos, he'd just sneak out to the corner. And, yeah, they'd swing it and next minute he's got it and he'd be shooting these stationary threes from the corner. And I haven't seen it done better than how they used to do it back in the day. And I, I think it, I think there's room for it and I think definitely now. And, look, the other thing that's happened, and I don't think it's so much, um, you know, the skill in that, I, I also think wheelchair basketball has become a lot more professional. So, you know, we used to get picked and I'd be going, you beauty, I'm going on a going on a tour with the lads, whereas now it's, hey, we're going to try and win a tournament and yeah. you train, you know, 10 times a week or whatever it is. And um, so I think also the, the the bodies of the wheelchair players have, have got stronger, leaner, quicker. And um, so I don't think there's any reason why we can't take it to that next level and start start utilising the stationary through. Cool. Um, this ties in a little bit, I guess, in the the kind of shifting of the game, but this is a question that got sent in from our friend Tom Smith, who uh, I don't know if you'll ever seen Tom play, but he describes you as a hero of his in kind of play style. And he says, do you think that the kind of old school center is a dying breed in the wheelchair basketball game? Nah, never, never. I mean, the one thing wheelchair basketball you can't do is jump, right? So and, and again, look, maybe maybe it was just the, the era that I went through. Like right now in the NBA, you've just got some unbelievable shooters that we might not ever see again. Yeah, when when I went through, you know, like, you know, Simon Munn, massive unit. Sandro Carabini from Italy, massive unit. Matteo Cavanini at 47s back in the national team for Italy. And, <laughs> you know, they've just qualified for the World Cup. Um, yeah, he was he was always a, you know, big in his chair and then, you know, you look around like, you know, there's obviously Joey, Patty, I mean, you know, and then you go to the States. I mean, I remember I remember playing Dallas back in the day and that's when they had the one, two, three system and it was 12 points on court. Yeah. So if you were about a four to four and a half, you, you're a three-pointer. So they had they had um, Tree Waller, um, Van Beek and and Daryl Waller, Tree Waller, you know, him and Van Beek, they were like six, eight, six, ten. Then they had Reggie Colton who had no legs and he used to sit in the donut seat type thing. And he was the same. He was like six six or something. So they had these, and he was a two-pointer. And then they had Troy running around as a point guard. And he was he was a he was the fourth biggest on court. So <laughs> and they used to they used to they used to beat up on everyone. And um yeah, so I don't think that I don't think the the it's died. I just think we're waiting for another person to come along and you know, put the work in like, you know, Justin Eveson and, and those guys did and, and you know, learn because the biggest thing is they've got to learn to use, they don't have the natural wheelchair skills of someone that's been in the chair or is in the chair permanently all day. So, and that that's the biggest thing. You've got to be able to learn and put the hard work in, like daily hard work to be able to get the skill to be able to get to a position and then, you know, um, there's going, look, I'm going back because this is the year I'm in, but, you know, you yeah, you used to look at someone like Jeff Glassbanner and how hard he worked to become a real average player. To um, I think he still holds the the record. I think he dropped sixty three points in one of the um, NWA finals over there, and and just everything was tilting. Yeah, you just couldn't guard him because once he got position, yeah, he just tilt on you, angle the shot, and whack down two points. 
Okay, yeah. so size still matters is what we're what we're taking away from this. I'll bring back the two four and a halves, the three and two ones, and we'll, I'll, I'll give you a go. That's all right. Yeah. I think I don't think it's I don't think it's dead. I just think it you just it takes a, it takes a, a really good point guard and uh, really good lows. I mean, if you don't have the lows that know how to do that pick and roll and the ceiling and stuff, it's not going to work. Yeah, sure. And I also think spacing spacing in the wheelchair game is kind of different to if you're talking about the development of the running game where they do a lot of five out stuff. Like it doesn't really work in terms of like, you need someone stretching going towards the basket or else you just play like having five people on the three point line in the NBA is a great thing. Having five people on the three point line in the wheelchair game is an inability to break down a high line. You know what I mean? Like you're just, no one gets anywhere unless you've got someone going to the basket. And I think everyone gets more expansive and more skilled and open the game opens the game up around them. But unless you've got big, big guys going to the basket, like I still think it it doesn't work. Like you see, even like a lot of what GB does, like Lee Manning makes things tick on both ends of the floor as well. Like you've got someone protecting the hoop on the other end, but just having that size going to the basket, I don't think, as you say, you can't jump. Like if you're open, you're open. Like if someone in front of you isn't big enough to check that shot, that's you're wide open, so I don't think that goes away anytime soon. Yeah, I mean Lee's an interesting character, isn't he? I mean, I thought he was, I thought he was fantastic in uh, Tokyo. Yeah, and uh, I just don't understand how he hasn't cemented that role like real permanently earlier plan for GB because he's just such a huge unit of a guy. But I think that I think it, it does take a it does take a squad, right? It does take depth, and if you've only got five. It's not going to in today's game. It's not going to get it done, yeah. and you, you need to be able to mix it up and and run with with different combos. And I think the states have proven that with the fact that you know they they almost go five on five off, sure, um, and and they they change it up there. But you know you look at Spain's had some really good success playing with those you know three four players that all sit tall. And if you look at their if you analyse and break down their stats, they're happy to give up the three, but they score everything's inside and, and they don't give up too many offensive boards. And you know, and they've had success playing that way. So uh, look, you can't get you can't get away from having a deep squad, but also it, you know, it doesn't matter who you got out there. If you can't pick and roll and do those, do the fundamentals um, in wheelchair basketball, you're going to struggle. Yeah, fair enough. Right. Uh, what have we got next? A couple more things on the early days before we move on so this question come in from matt wild who says who did you look up to when you started your playing career um yeah sandy Blythe was someone he was the one that got me out of perth and got me over to melbourne and and um yeah he was yeah he was he was he was good as good on the court as he was off the court yeah he would have given me shed off his back and yeah at that age to to move to move cities, to move on the other side of Australia. Um, How yeah, old were you when you moved, just for the, the timeline? Uh, yeah, early 20s. Um, and sort of give up, my, you know, give up my job and everything that I've worked hard for post-accident. Yeah. Um, I actually went across to Melbourne for $500 and I thought it was, I thought he was going to pay me $500 a week. And that was what <laughs> my, whole, my whole contract was. So, mate, was that about £150 yeah. <laughs> for, for, for 10 months? And, um, but, yeah, I, I wanted to be a professional athlete. So in my mind, you pay me 500 bucks, I'm now a professional athlete. So <laughs> I used that in fuel getting across Australia in my car. It took me four days to drive there. So, yeah. um, But looking up, there was him and also Troy, right, because Troy was just, he just 
burst onto the scene in 96 and had 42 points in the final, much to the uh, dismay of the English fellas, <laughs> JJ and a few of the others. And um, But, you know, and, and he was the one that had gone to America and was at college and then he'd got his, you know, got a contract in, in Europe, which was for us. We, we don't, we'd heard stories, but no one knew what it was about. And he sort of paved that way for us. And, the trail. You know, as much as he, yeah, as much as he was pretty hard and he was, you know, a lot of people, you know, probably didn't understand Troy um, as well as I got. I got to live with him for a bit. Um, yeah, he um, he did, he did, he was willing to make you a better player and, and he did it by example. He just worked bloody hard. So those couple of guys were, you know, I probably looked up to the most. And, and I think also Paulie Shilty in the early days because he sort of taught me, um, you know, a, a lot about, you know, how to, how to play the game. Sure. Uh, talking about influences on you in your early career, this might be a question that's too hard to answer, but uh, what's the best piece of advice you've ever gotten? Is there one that sticks out or one that you remember like sort of guided you? Yeah, again, uh, late Gavin Farrell, just a local league player here in Perth and yeah, he never really got an opportunity at an Australian level. Um, I think he might have gone to a couple of camps and that. But he, he said to me, he goes, look, and he goes, you're going to be, he goes, you're going to be a good player. Um, and he goes, and everyone's going to want to tell you something. He goes, but just listen to what they say and then pick the pieces from what they say that's going to be relevant to you and you become your own player. You do what you, you want to do. Um, and, and I think for anyone starting out, by all means, listen, listen, because people, you know, and everyone plays the game differently. I, I'm pro four halves, you know, sealing into getting under position A. If you talk to a three-pointer, they're going to be all about transition, shooting the ball, right? Everyone's different. So I think that was good piece of advice to me. It was like, you know, listen, try, but adapt. You Be you, but make your own game. Don't, don't be pigeonholed into something because that's what it, the system says. Nice. All right, we we ask people that every so often, and they're like, "God, there's too many to pick from." But I like that. I like that. There's one that that stuck out. Cool. Okay, shall um, we? We'll shift forward a little bit. You mentioned your kind of Aussie debut and um, trying to catch that one pass from Troy Sachs, but we we obviously had Tom O'Neill Thorne on a couple of weeks ago, and we were chatting to him to kind of get a feel for what the Australian league has done for him in kind of his development. He's obviously been over to Europe and, and back now and whatever else. So in kind of your early Aussie rollers years, you were presumably still playing in Australia while you were on that development curve. And what was, what was the state of the Australian league, I guess, as you were kind of playing your years there as compared to what it is now, maybe. What it is now, we're working hard to make sure we can keep it keep it running and, and make it competitive. And okay, so it's just my little one putting that putting happy in the gym as long as I don't have to do it. Um, <laughs> back in the day, um, how good was it? So we had bloody Paddy Anderson playing for Brisbane. We had Joey Johnson playing down for Wollongong, um, Garzi and anyone that Troy could get to come and play in that midpoint role for him. Um, that's okay. That's okay. Oh, hey, we've got a guest here for a second. This is Scarlett. Say hello to the world, Scarlett. <laughs> um, yeah, so there was Garzi and a few others. I think Jamie Maisie came out for a bit and 
I can't remember. There's heaps, heaps of people. And um, and then, um, yeah, yeah, David Gould, Kun Janssen and Kunet. You know, when Kun was on, he was one of the best. I think he's one of the best players to come out of Europe. So, yeah, every team had a high pointer of just incredible class. You know, David Gould, Troy Sachs, Paddy Anderson, you know, Joey Johnson. So the league was unbelievable. It was, uh, and these guys had dropped 40. You know, I remember one game playing against Kun and I thought, oh, I didn't do too bad against Kun. He only had 42 points. And then I realised he had 20-something assists. There was only one basket. He didn't have a direct handy in the whole game. They scored like 80-something points. What was his so, excuse for that one? He's probably subbed out getting a drink. <laughs> and you've come away from that being like, oh, I did all right, Brad. No worries. Yeah, I was like, yeah, I did all right. I kept him to 40, you know. Yeah, right. I, he was probably feeling sorry for me. But um, so, yeah, so in the early days for me, it was unreal because every week I got to go up against someone that was a little bit different. They were all different players. Um, and I got, I just got to, I just got to say, right, today this is this is what I'm going to try and do, and and go out there and do it. And if I didn't, if I didn't achieve it, well, I got to go again next week again against someone as good, if not better. So, um, yeah, in the early days it was unreal. Uh, the only problem is, like, when you play for WA or Perth, it's between a three and a five hour plane trip every time you got to go and play. So, um, yeah, the road trips are pretty tough, and. Um, yeah, now it's 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 good. We're we're starting to build it up. We've got some really good depth through our twenty threes, and I think this year, I think give it another one or two years, and it'll, you know, it'll be back to a, a pretty high level for us. So just to to jump on on that quickly because I think probably a lot of people listening don't know the. I guess it's like a. A forgotten fact, maybe that Pat and Joey were playing in Australia way back in the day. Um, so, what do you think? Do you think the league's kind of? Do you think it's lost its appeal as Europe and the states have got stronger in terms of pulling guys in, or do you think it's just a matter of time until it gets back up to that level? Um, I think the national teams in Europe, with the with the way that you guys play your 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 tournaments and stuff through summer. Um, that's put a put a bit of a break on on things, but I'm just going to freely advertise it. We look like the league's going to probably start in June or July this year out here. So if anyone wants to to come out, we, we and this is I mean the other thing is too, we don't have any money out here. Um, so like you might get a roof over your head and use of someone's car, but you'll be you know, sleeping in a spare room or whatever. Um, so it's more of an adventure to come out and see Oz and play some ball and have some good fun. Um, I think that's what appealed to Joey and the lads. You know, they just got to come out and live in Australia for a bit. And I think they got to, yeah, some teams have got the ability to play a couple hundred bucks maybe. But, um, yeah, it's, it, there's, no, there's, there's not that side of it, which, you know, that's probably a, you know, something that we've got to work on um, to, to make it a bit more appealing. But, you know, if you want to come out in your summer, and the other thing is it's winter here then. So you're giving up your summer to go winter to winter. So, yeah, you got to make a couple of sacrifices. But... Yeah, not too bad. Yeah, I think I think that's the thing where maybe some people might have gone out when you're like young and you're like, ah, I'll go for a summer. It'll be it'll be an adventure. But I think a lot of guys end up playing in Europe so young now that it's maybe not something that comes to people. Someone goes, do I go to Australia, which is the other side of the world for a lot of people over here, obviously, um, and experience something or. I don't 
know, am I already involved in my national team stuff when I'm 19 or do I stick around because I can go and play in Europe for X amount a month? Like, I think that's kind of the decision that people are making now. And there's a lot more opportunities closer to home, I think is the thing, which, but it's a real shame because I've heard, like, I know a couple of people that have gone out, obviously a couple of GB boys and they say it was unbelievable. And it was just a really, really cool experience as a young fellow to go out and as you say, just play some basketball and have some fun. And I think any team here would take someone and they would, they'd, they'd work hard. I mean, we had an import out here. I mean, like we didn't need the, the big players, but we had um, Hiro Hiroshi from Japan. And when uh-huh. I told the, the guys that were running the team here that I'd found our import, he was a one-pointer from Japan. Um, yeah, they uh, they like, what have you done? But, you know, Hiro showed us something. He, as a low-pointer, could shoot left and right hand. He had unbelievable back-picking skills and just brought something, a, a different element. So, yeah, if anyone wanted to come out, flick us a message and, you know, we can see what we can do because at the end of the day, like, we just want to have the strongest league as possible and give that opportunity to, I mean, like you guys have given them the opportunity to so many Australians playing in Europe. You know, why wouldn't we try and reciprocate that a bit? Sure. You're, temp- you're tempting me out of retirement the more you're talking. <laughs> yeah, do you need a 1-5? Mark's yeah. available. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm not. I've got to hold it down here. That's, the, the weather's too good to pass up. Um, <laughs> the north of England's calling. Yeah, you've got plenty. You've got plenty to be doing. Um, so, kind of, I guess that's league-wise covered, Brad. We, you mentioned your first tournament being '99. Uh, is that right? And yeah. that's obviously the year before you guys hosted the Paralympics in Sydney. Um, yeah. So that's was that you to the Paralympics? It kind of very I. Can't figure out from the timeline we've been talking on what age you would have been at that point, but presumably not playing for a huge amount of time at that stage before you got chucked in the deep end. Mm. Yeah, so I, I, I was the last one cut from the 98 World Cup, which we hosted. Right. Um, yeah, and that was pretty disappointing, right? And that, they did it the old school way, like had a big game, caught me over into the corner, cut me from the team and... I was like, oh, now I've got to go get on a plane and fly five hours home. So, you know, all sorry us. And um, so it was a bit of a kick in the pants because I thought I was going to make it. Um, and then that just really made me want to go harder and play, you know, try as hard as I could. And that's when I went over to UTA. And um, and that was the first time I saw sport. Well, actually, I'll be honest with you. I mean, everyone's banging on about inclusion now. You know, I can tell you that um, that was the first time I'd seen um you know, inclusion prevalent like that was at UTA where they just, the wheelchair athletes were just seen as equal to everyone else and it was unreal. And, you know, to be able to go there and be part of the university and play and that, you know, something that I'm forever grateful for. So, um, yeah, to go over there, I just I just wanted to, I just put everything in to be able to make Sydney and then to get, get a letter in the mail to say I'd been, <laughs> which doesn't happen anymore. But to, to say I've been, you know, selected to represent Australia was pretty cool. And you're right, I was really raw, um, still learning my way, and I still remember the first game against Japan. Um, yeah, it was it was unbelievable. You know, being at home, being in the stadium, we were the first ones to have that day ticket, so people could go to every event and just stay oh, there for the whole day. So, yeah, I think we played in front of America, or played against America in front of about nineteen thousand people. So, like. Right. My memories are still really clear um, of just some of those games and just being 
you know, being an Aussie, being there and and just being a part of that that Sydney Games was it was like it'd be like the GB guys for when it was in London, right? It was just yeah. it was unreal. I think that's something that like people, if they're fortunate, go to one or two. If they're more fortunate, um, have a long career, they go to a handful more. But the likelihood of having crossover of having a home games while you're at the age and ability to be competing is just absolutely amazing. I've heard like it's obviously like those things have happened recently enough that like there's not another home games in the time that I'm going to keep playing and God knows how many more I'll get to. But um, that's just that apparently it's the most special thing in the world. Like being in a room full of that many people who are all absolutely for you rather than 50, 50. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and like everyone, they've all been different. So Athens, they didn't quite get the game, the village right and everything. And it wasn't the same razzmatazz and we didn't have the same crowd. So that was a, like a little bit different. Um, but yeah, no, and, and London was quite special. There were some big, there were some big crowds there and, and and got around it. But I'll be honest with you, I, I the best crowds I played, I remember playing Landill. I think it was at Landill, um, with their crazy supporters and in the final of one of the Euro Cups and Patty and I mean, had Patty, Garzi, Joey, and a couple of others and playing 16 points and we're out there having a red hot swing at them and um yeah, just the, the atmosphere in that stadium. Oh, you could not hear anything. Like, you know, the, I think they called what well, they got there, the rolling drums. Are they, they still still going? And, I think uh, so. Uh, they, they've shifted yeah. venue now, haven't they? I think they're in they're in a different arena now. They're in a big arena now, yeah. It's, were, yeah, yeah the, the drums are still um, are still a feature for sure. <laughs> well, I reckon there would have been, yeah, two, 3,000 people there and probably about an 800-seat sta- stadium and um yeah, so there's been, yeah, as much as the games are really special, uh, I, I, there's been, and even playing against Santa Lucia in their little court, I don't know if anyone ever played underneath the hospital there, but, yeah, yeah they'd get that place rocking as well. It was like a little cauldron forming the dungeon underneath the hospital, yeah. and, yeah, that was pretty good fun too because, yeah, I played for them and against them, and, yeah, the, I, I can tell you what, the love was definitely not there when I played against them, that's no. for sure. I think that makes a difference as well. Like, if you have a couple of thousand people who are home fans for a club that means a lot to them. You you almost get a bit more of intensity compared compared to however many thousand people who have bought tickets to a Paralympics because they couldn't get tickets to the Olympics. You know what I mean? Like you have more people, but who are kind of like out there for a family day out, whereas you've got absolute like fanatics coming to Landale games or Santa Lucia games or like in but in Bilbao at the minute, like I'm sure Yannick and Tom have spoken to you. There's a couple of mad people with drums who just deeply, deeply care about wheelchair basketball. And I think you you notice that. Like it's a different kind of cheering, isn't it? Like it's a different kind of crowd. I'll tell you, I'll tell you a funny story. Well, funny, I don't know. Is it funny? Is it sad? But so I went down and played for Taranto. I, I was I was I had a choice going to Taranto or Paris and I took Taranto because it was near the beach. I just wanted to go and play somewhere near the water. I was missing missing home and just wanted to go down there. And anyway, first year we didn't do too well. Second year we made the final we're playing sandwich here. And it, we, I think back then, geez, I don't know if it was best of five or best of seven, best of five, I think, in the in the finals. And we got through to game five and Taranto is a six-hour car trip back up. So we had to come up in a bus. Anyway, all, we were the last Taranto team standing. The soccer was out. Women's able board basketball was out. We were the last one. So next minute, a bloody a bus, big, big, big tour bus full of people comes up, and um, they get in the stadium. They got, they've all got um, pots and pan lids, and that's all they brought for them. <laughs> and they're these pots and pans. Anyway, we won. 
don't ask me how, and we won the championship. And um, so I'm in, I'm in the change room with with um, Shawnee and a couple of the lads. I think Sam Bader was there and Tungy Six and and a guy comes up to me and he's crying and he's hugging me. He's just going, thank you, thank you, thank you. And he's crying and everything. And I'm just going, geez, this is a bit full on. And it turns out his old man had died and they'd postponed the funeral so that they could come up to watch us play the last game wow. and we'd won it. So it justified postponing his old man's funeral. Gosh. And I just sat back and that that blew me away. I was just like, holy shit. Like, <laughs> these guys, like, we, I didn't know and they just got around us because, and I'll never forget, I could not tell you the postcode or anywhere else besides Taranto, 74100. And, um, yeah, it was just they were so fanatical about their their town and, and how much that that meant to them that someone was willing to postpone a funeral. So, yeah, yeah like Europe, Europe's different. That's why I loved it. That's why I stayed there so much. Well, we're, we're going to hit kind of the next um, next item on our rundown is your European career because you've, we, I mean, we could do a full episode just on this, right? Because you've been been all over the all over the show. You've played all over Italy. You've played in you know various Euroleague tournaments or whatever. But for the people who don't, kind of anyone who follows Europe now, where your playing career there might have been before their time, do you want to give those people a brief rundown of kind of your what paved the way to Europe for you and kind of what your initial clubs were like and how you I guess subsequently decided which clubs you wanted to join year by year I didn't really get a choice I don't get to that in a sec you know laugh about it but um yeah I came back and after Sydney I didn't know what I was going to do I'd, I'd put my boat career on hold and, and and being a skipper it's a bit like flying a plane you've got to keep your hours up yeah. and my if I didn't make it in football I always wanted to go to the Med or to Fort Lauderdale and drive you know the big the big boat. So I actually had a license or a skipper's ticket to drive a 50-metre vessel. So, yeah, I wanted to get on these mega yachts and go and have some fun. So I was always sort of wanting to get to Europe and go and have a look. I mean, why wouldn't you? So um, anyway, so post-Sydney, I didn't really know what I was doing and some lady rang me up and um, she was trying to speak English and it wasn't really clear and I thought someone was having to lend to me. I thought it was one of those, like, crazy calls from the radio where they take the, take the mickey out of you. <laughs> and uh, she's like, um, Brad, Brad, you come to Italy. And I'm like, yeah, well, no, I've got nothing else to do. And it was where Troy was playing at Cantu. And um, so I went to school where they taught Italian. I was like, I'll never need Italian. Why would I do Italian? So I did woodwork and metalwork and... Um, I can't cut a piece of wood in half and I certainly can't do anything with metal. And then I end up I end up going over to Italy and I remember landing and they took me to a restaurant. It was lunchtime and they put a whole pizza in front of me. <laughs> what am I meant to do with this? I've never eaten a whole pizza in my life. And um, so I'm smashing this pizza and, you know, into it and everyone's this in Italian and no one could understand it, um, English. And I was just like, oh, what have I got myself into here? And um, so... <laughs> I thought I was going across for eight months. I was like, I'll go across for eight months, do a bit of backpacking, see, see Europe, play a bit of ball and um, come back. Anyway, eight months turned into 13 years. I played at Cantu for a couple of years, which was a real eye. And I mean, Alfredo Marzon would have to be one of the craziest presidents I've ever been involved with. <laughs> but, I mean, his love for the game and what he's been able to achieve there with Brantier is is phenomenal and he's done it all off his own back. Um yeah, and he's built some good teams that have been really competitive, and I think they're having some good success now because 
when we started there, I, I actually was um, with Troy. I actually started with Troy there. Their, um, their pathways program, and we had one one kid when we started, and then we got it in the second year. We got a couple more, and then we started going to the schools, and and it's growing there now to um, something pretty cool. And then um, I sort of finished a camp two after the second year. They said they didn't want me back, and I was like, okay, no worries. And then San Lucia rang me up and said, or sent me an email and said, would you like to come? And they even they gave me a pay rise. I didn't even know they could have got me cheaper. <laughs> but, <laughs> And I was like, no worries, I'll, I'll come. I'll come back, and and then you know, I, sent, I played a sandwich here for a couple of years, and I was I was I helped them build their junior program as well. And and I think one of yeah, one of my I believe one of my greatest achievements outside of everything else was actually taking the Rome junior team to play the Cantu junior team, and um, that was the first junior basketball game that they played. So it was pretty cool, pretty special, and. Um, Love my time in San Lucia. I mean, that was that was like a professional club. Like they had they had it going on. Um, yeah, the change rooms and everything. Like it was it was you were treated so well. They had mechanics and yeah, you you, you chuck your kid in the corner in the change room. You come back the next day and it's washed and folded. And um, yeah, it was, it was it was unbelievable. It was it really was Hollywood for, for yeah, considering where we were and we yeah we were, we're still a you know, a, a para sport right so. Um, yeah, that was pretty cool. And then again, I got well, I got sacked twice from San Lucia. I got sacked, and then I I, I tore them up Italy up in in Athens. So then they re-signed me again, and um, and then I got I got the boot again after the next year because we didn't win a, win a championship. I think I averaged twenty eight points that year. So just shows your points don't mean everything. Yeah, and, so it must uh, have been not, your fault. Not that you're bitter or anything. <laughs> no, nah, I'm not bitter, but I tell you what, I won a championship against them, so I'm pretty happy about that. And, <laughs> That'll um, do. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, so then went down to Taranto and, and look, I thought Taranto was going to be a stopgap for a year uh, and I just loved the city and I loved everything about it. Spent three years down there and then that's when I came back and, and played for Elecom for five years and and then did my last year out on the island of Sardinia. I just had to do it. I, I was like, I've got to go and play a year on the island. I suppose a bit like the Grand Canaries. I always wanted to go and do a year out there and um and then I was like, look, if I don't go home, I'm going to die on this island. I'll, I'll probably never leave. So, and that's when I, I sort of pulled the pin and, um, yeah, I had a really good opportunity to come back to Australia and, and do some stuff with Boar here. But, I mean, Europe was so good. Like, it was, it was just unreal. It was just, I can't, yeah. I can't, I can't explain it enough for how much fun I had. And, and, and the quality of basketball, like every week, especially in Italy back then, every team was, was stacked with, with, with players and, yeah, even what spun me out was like you'd reel into a stadium and you know, there'd be some bloke from you know Croatia or you know somewhere to be having a doig out the front and yeah, and you think, oh yeah, we're gonna run over these blokes. The next minute the bloke having a C out the front's just dropped 20 on you, half time, you're down by 15, you're like, you know, what's going on here? And uh yeah, so it was all every game was was tough. And I suppose it's a bit like you know, the Spanish league now. You know, they've got what four teams fighting it out for the for the for the for the cup and um you know, what yeah you know, and so yeah it's, it was just it was just really really good and it was hard it was hard basketball right and you know, yeah the games changed I, mean, I think if I played now I'd be uh any sport what is it um yeah you're out of the stadium so I don't know if I'd, I would have been able to stay on the court nowadays but back then it was um pretty free and easy. Yeah, I was gonna say it's all right. They blow one of those every game now, but it's maybe just because I play for Bilbao. <laughs> maybe that's what what's happening. But oh, yeah. uh, obviously, you mentioned home cooking. That home cooking. That's good. Oh yeah. 
Um, one thing I wanted to ask, are there any, obviously 13 years, there's going to be a lot that sticks out, but if someone sits down and asks you about your time in Europe, are there any particular games that stick out as like, wow, no, that was, that was special. You mentioned going and giving Landil a good go in their place. And is there anything else? I just think the you know I was pretty pretty fortunate enough to play in teams that that ran deep in the Euro Cup. Um, I'm, I'm still a bit dirty. I never won when I got to the final and stuff. But um, I mean they're bloody hard to win. That's that's tough basketball. That that final four. Or well, I know this year it's um, final eight or something in it um, where they just haven't won tournament. But um, yeah. Yeah, sometimes you had to win three. Like sometimes in the qualifying, you like look at your drawing, you're like shit. Like, look what we're going to get through. Um, yeah, and you had to travel, and you're on a budget, so sometimes you had to catch a ferry and a bus and a plane, and you know, take your day and a bit to get there. And but you know, the I, I think one of the big ones, one of the big ones for me, and and this is going to be before a lot of people's time, and I think it was so big was because I actually was so naive. We went with Can two down to Sevilla to play in the Euro Cup. And I had no idea how big the Euro Cup was. And that's when Diego Topaz and um, um, the guy from from uh, Madrid, the other really good player that they had up there for the national team. And we beat Sevilla. Mm-hmm. And then we got the next uh, – then, then we got the uh, Madrid team in the, in the semifinals and um, – you know, we, we, we give them a go as well. And, you know, I didn't realise the significance of what we had done, considering there was only really me and Troy. And, um, you know, like I was just happy. I was having a beer afterwards thinking, like, this, this is pretty cool. But I didn't actually realise how, like, the how well we'd actually played to, to, to beat those Spanish teams in Spain. So they were pretty good. But, yeah, the Landil final, that was pretty cool. And I, and I just think any, any of the Euro Cup um, finals games, whether it was the first one or the or the last one of the tournament, they're always you're always playing against handpicked teams that you know could play play the game at the highest level. Sure. Um, one stop, I just want to circle back to a little bit because I I think this is maybe from a little bit before our time of following the Euro Cup and stuff as closely. But you mentioned Elecom Roma, who were kind of all the way in the thick of it for winning the Italian league a number of years in a row, uh, had some pretty good Euro cup runs and now just don't exist anymore. They, there's some historical Elecom Roma teams. I don't know how easy this is for people to look up, but there's some of the rosters that were stacked beyond belief. Do you have any Elecom Roma kind of, Oh man, this was the best team I was ever on. And people don't even remember it because there's no video. Shit, there was some stacked teams there, wasn't it? I mean, that's what that's what you had to do to try and beat San Lucia. Um, you know, because San Lucia always get a couple of imports in, but then they would sort of get the best of um, you know, the best of the Italian players. And back then Italy were, you know, they were on fire, they were winning Euro, they were winning the Euro Cup as a as I think they won back-to-back Euro Cups. Um, you know, with you know Andre Rocker and Sergio and, and the boys, you know, Sana and a few others and so you had to build these teams if you wanted to be sandwich. I think they won 21. What did they win? I think they went to the finals 21 times in a, in a row or something. Yeah, you know, it's just unbelievable. Wow. And um, and so you had to build a big team. And I think there was one roster where I couldn't believe the president. <clears throat> he just kept buying players. Um, we had Simon Mutt. So JJ, I think, was the coach. And I love JJ. Right? Um, you know, JJ's taught me so much. If you're actually talking about someone that I look up to, um, 
yeah, I, I still I still talk to JJ, <clears throat> you know, quite regularly, you know, weekly if not fortnightly. And um, so he was our coach. You know, we had Simon Munn flying in. We had said um, Sandra Carabini himself. So we had three of the biggest blokes probably in Europe. Then we had Adolfo wheeling around. Then he went and got Richard Peters from Canada. Wow. Um, we had Mikey Hartnett from Australia. Um, yeah, he just, he just, that team was unbelievable. I think there were seven import players and um, and we all had to get on the court somehow and then we all wanted the ball. So I don't know if it was ever going to work, but I, I tell you, if, if you're ever going to win a championship on paper, that was the team that was uh, going to do it. That, that, must have been, have, that must have been the early Adolfo Badoon years. Did he still play at a glacially slow slow pace even then? Yeah, he didn't like, yeah, I mean, Adolf, I love him, but uh, he didn't like, you know, going too hard. He, he wanted to uh, sit outside and, you know, and, and take that shot. But um, I think, oh, to give Adolfo credit, I think he's got better as the years going on. And, um, yeah, he's still, I understand he's still pushing around. I think he's on to about his fifth club. I think he's played more clubs than I have now. That's pretty, pretty tough. Pretty yeah, he's at Julian over now. Julian over now with um with the boys over there. And uh I think and I think I think Mateo's there now with Damiano and a few of the other ones. So Galliano, sorry. Yes. Um yeah, so that I mean that'll be a handful though, crafty old buggers. Um but yeah, no, I think just Adolfo's got better. Um I think he, I think he was at you know when he got to Cam too, I think that's probably when he was at probably at his best. And uh, yeah, and he's done some good stuff for Argentina and, and plays played some good basketball there and helped them get to a few World Cups and stuff, so credit to him. But um, yeah, it was a hard ask for him trying to get a get a gig get a gig in that team. That was for sure. <laughs> yeah, was it? Did you guys find any trouble having so many so many big names, so many guys that, as you say, wanted the ball and wanted to be number one, or did it kind of just fit together? I'm sure there was some I'm sure there was some trouble on a random Tuesday night in October, obviously. But when it came to playing in Saturday. Like playing in the yeah, big you know, There were some rumblings and some people that weren't happy. And um, yeah, but I mean, you get that in a lot of European teams, especially when you got a lot of foreigners and, um, you know, different cultures and stuff. So, you know, you might say something and it gets taken the wrong way because of the way you said it. But it's just that, you know, someone from another culture might, that might have offended them. And what you might not have tried to, but. Well, that wasn't your intentions. It's just your expressions and 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 not knowing. And yeah, it is hard when you've got you know that many good guys that that are used to being the the centre part of of the team, um, and and different philosophies on how to play. So, I just tried to use Mikey as much as I could to get under the basket, and then I had to get the ball. So yeah, I think that was the last of me pushing hard up and down the court. So um, <laughs> it, might have, it might have ended my days actually. Even you now I come to think of it. So. But yeah, no, it was it was tough. But at the same time, we wanted to win. So and I think that kept the ship straight. And also having JJ as the you know, JJ is so level-headed and so he's just like that wise old man. And uh <laughs> and uh yeah, he just kept us um with his calm, you know, calm nature. He kept the ship ship going in the right direction. But um you can't underestimate the pressure from the presidents and stuff to, to win when they invest that sort of coin into a team. And, uh, yeah, so you, you always cop the off when uh, when things didn't quite go to plan, that's for sure. Definitely. I, I imagine, the last thing before we move on, but I imagine um, Michael Hartnett being in the team with you and Simon Munn being like in every TV show where they're like, hey, We'll decide who the dog thinks owns them by. We'll both stand here and we'll both call them. I imagine you and Simon being like, hey, come curl this side. No, come curl this side. And him just being like, where do I go from here? 
How good's big man, eh? How good? And then I was stoked to play with him for a season because I, I mean, I we just bashed each other up for for many years there. And um, I, you know, in my early early national international stuff, I, you know, he was my main person I had to go up against. And yeah, he was he was actually um, deceptively quick up and down the oh, court. Yeah, so powerful. Yeah, he's just so powerful. So like, you had to get a chair on him and. There's two people. There's two people that I knew I'd played a game of basketball when I finished. It was, it was him and 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 Joey. Like, yeah. yeah, your body would ache for a day or two after you played those two big units, just smacking into them the whole time. And yeah, so it was good to go and play. And you are right, oh, poor Mikey. And Mikey loves Simon. So, um, yeah, I was like, I felt like I was being bloody betrayed. And I was like, wait, <laughs> yeah, that's part of it. Right, James. Do you want to ask your signature question before we move on to? Yeah, so this is a question, and I, I always just wedge it in somewhere. There's never a there's never a point that it makes sense to ask, but anyone who's played a certain amount of years and seen things and traveled all over the world, I always ask when I remember to, what's the weirdest thing you've ever seen on a basketball court? Because we've got some hilarious stuff from this. <laughs> Well, there's a couple of things. I've seen a couple of chairs. So, um, oh god, it's always never, it's nearly always some really really disabled stuff. Yeah, so I remember that. when this last got brought up. But Ben Fox's theory, working on this, is that anyone who commits that kind of act mid-game should get an automatic technical foul, <laughs> which I'm all for. Well, we've we've, we've got Team Brown in Australia, and um, it's a pretty bloody good team. But, um, yeah, to get into Team Brown, you've got to either, you know, pretty much shit yourself or, or something along those lines. So um, there's been some quite funny stories and there's some really good, honourable people in that team. And um, <laughs> so, you know, it is, I think it's part of power sports, isn't it? No, I think the, yeah. the funniest thing I've seen, oh, I've seen a few things. I've seen flares thrown by the Gallup to that Sasserai team. That was quite... That was out there when they bloody lit up the stadium and, and went nuts and we had the, the game got delayed by about 20 minutes while they got the smoke out of there. That was all that was quite good. Wow. Um but the uh one of the funniest things was actually just I wasn't playing, I was a, an assistant, but we went to Thailand and we're we're playing the Thailand national team and um the stadium was still building all the courts and stuff. We were the show court had been made. And anyway, so we're in there and it's hot. It's hot, it's just just if you can imagine time, it was hot, humid. You know, the dogs had come in because the aircon was leaking or there was like water on the concrete inside the stadium. And next minute, the boys are on a fast break. And I think it was like Bill, Tom, Sean, and they're just going flying down the court. And this dog goes across the court. And it's like it's like a slow motion thing, like, oh shit, someone's gonna clean up this dog. And, you know, the boys all down, you know, all over the place. So, yeah, mid-game, mid there's a dog in the middle of the court in Thailand. I think that was probably the most we've, bizarre thing I've seen. We've never heard that one. <laughs> yeah. That's nuts. That's, that's way better than Rose talking about the time that someone flipped over into, do you know. The little hole that's oh, in the floor to put a like a volleyball yeah, pole into. She talked about someone like jamming their elbow in that, like when they fell over and like breaking their elbow, which is the worst thing I've ever heard. Like I wanted to stop the podcast when we talked about that, but anyway, we'll, we'll move on. So, yeah, we've 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 sort of poked and prodded you about Europe. So let's get on to the Aussie Rollers stuff. Um, Mark, this is your question in the beginning. So do you want to? So. This one, I was thinking about this because I've been watching some of your games back in kind of prep for, for doing this. Um, and 
it kind of struck me that you guys in Canada were in this battle for however many years you want to call it. Um, your resume is obviously a Paralympic gold, two world championship gold, and it's not really been done by anybody since. And my question was, when you're in the middle of that kind of historic run, is there a point at which you realize that you're the reigning dynasty in the world? Or do you always feel like somebody's breathing down your neck to the point where you're, you're always too aware of the challenge to realize where you're at? Um, yeah, first off, I mean, I, just hearing you say it, I've got goosebumps again. And um, I've never watched any of the games. I've never seen any of the finals games. You're too busy with your restaurant, right? Best pizzas in Perth, brother. Best pizzas in Perth. How do I even come to getting a restaurant? It's got me stuffed. And um, I tell you what, as much as it's a love affair, it's bloody hard work. And um, yeah, I can't wait to get rid of it, actually. But um, <laughs> look, it's it, it was look, we we got to the final in two thousand and four in in Athens, and. Look, we'd won the gold, well, not we, but Australia won the gold in 96. There was a lot of expectation put on the team in 2000 and we finished fifth. And, um, yeah, there was a lot of, we had a lot of internal problems then. And, um, anyway, just out of the blue, we made the final. And I remember sleeping that night before the final, just thinking, I was laying awake going, we've got a medal. Like, we've won a medal before we even got on the court. But what I'll say is this, I'd much prefer to win a bronze than lose a gold medal. Yeah, yeah. I know this is shitty, but to say this, because a lot of people will never ever get the opportunity to do what we got to do, but I'd rather go home winning a bronze than, than getting the silver. I don't know that's just the competitiveness in me, but um, I'd rather finish on a win. And I think that's what what drove us was, you know, when we lost that, that, that final, we had no business beating Canada, by the way. They were credit to them. They were the best team in the comp in, in 2004. But we all came together and sat on the balcony afterwards. And, um, yeah, he asked me about Murray. I mean, as much as Murray was old school and you didn't know if he was looking at you or not, and you'd think he's not looking at me and then he'd pull you up from 50 metres away and be like, how the did you see me do that, you know, and turn up and back. And yeah, that's start. the thing. You, you'll miss a layup two courts over and you'll be like, oh. he saw that, but I'm like talking yeah. to him face to face and I'm not even sure he can look at me now. True story. We weren't allowed to swear and I swear like a trooper. I grew up in the sheep yards, right? So I swear like a trooper. It's been very hard not to swear tonight. <laughs> yeah, so I've turned the ball over, but it's gone out the corner of the stadium into like this storeroom thing and I've pushed over to the storeroom to go and get the ball. And as I've pushed out, I've gone, yeah. Muzzer's over there. I don't even know how he had it, but he had it. And I'm like, how'd you hear it? Yeah, I think we got about 20 up and backs for all the same stupid and off we go. And then, of course, someone didn't know how many up and backs were on, so then it got doubled and about 100 up and backs later, we we, we finally finished and got to keep going with the drill. But um, Yeah, nine pushes, what, nine pushes baseline to baseline every time as oh, well. You know the drill. You know the drill. And um, what you guys got, we had already, right? So you're oh. like, but. But he taught it. He 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 made us basketball. He made us understand that you had to be a sportsman. You had to be legit about what you wanted to do. And but we sat down in two thousand four and was like, "What are we going to do to make ourselves better? What are we going to do to go one one step better?" And um, to go to Beijing and get on that roll. I mean, we were twenty points down against Brazil in the first game at halftime, and Benny and and Muzzer deflected to to the mother country. So there was a bit of. Yeah, that was pretty harsh. In fact, you know, we as you know, we looked at, you know, we respected him, and we still do. Don't get me wrong, but 
to lose your coach that had flogged you, like literally flogged you to to yeah. get to where we had got to, and then. But I mean, I had a good talk with him before he took it, and 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 back then, coaches didn't get anything, so the offer that he got was just too good to refuse, and he actually refused it several times before he took it. Um, and they, you know, GB to their credit, just chased him. Um, so yeah, that was pretty hard. But um, yeah, we got to we got there and we're twenty points down. And Benny Etridge, I thought he was going to tick because we're used to the Muzz regime, right? Yeah, coming it up, I'm and go nuts on us. And Benny just said. Simple philosophy, boys. One stop, one basket. We just got to get one stop, one basket. One stop, one basket. Yeah, we we sink a bucket. I think we we got the 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 go ahead basket in the game with four point one seconds to go, and we win it by a point, and that gave us the the belief that we could we could go deep. And um, you know that that gold medal game. I think there was about you could never say never with Canada. I mean, they Patty could light that up in no time, and. Um, yeah, I think we had them by about six or seven points or seven or eight points with a with a minute or so to go, and you know the sub start coming on, and the eyes are welling up with the tears, and you knew that you'd you'd done it. And I don't know what happened. I mean, Jay Jay just went ballistic in in what he he just became so focused and his training and everything that he was doing, and then that inspired us all to keep going. And then of course you had Tristan and the lads, and I think we just had a a really well-balanced team. Shawnee took his game to a whole nother level. I mean, we nicknamed him the Wizard just because of what he could do. But I think people forget he was 17 when he made his debut in, for when he made the starting five, which was in the gold medal game against Canada in 2004. So, you know, by the time he gets to early 20s, he's already had four years, five years, and he's he's got a Paralympic, you know, gold medal game under his belt. So, and then we just started and... We didn't like losing, that's for sure, and I think we're probably a little bit arrogant about that. But I mean, we worked hard, and and we we worked hard, we played hard, and um, we didn't take a backward step ever. And yeah, to get on that roll, it's it was it was really special. Um, you know, you, we lost probably only a handful of games for nearly ten years, and um, and then yeah, we'd get touched up in in tournaments outside of the big ones, um, and and. Traditionally, we're actually not a very good touring team. Um, in those tournaments, we normally lose more than we win. But when it comes to the big, big tournaments, somehow we just came together and and you know we just got it done. And and the game was evolving a lot at the time. And um, yeah, I, I suppose we got caught on the hop in in Rio. Probably didn't read the read the room too well going into Rio. Um, but I still believe we had a team that could have been better in, in Rio than what we were. But, um, yeah, when you wake up and you're sort of back-to-back champ, and, I mean, the one that hurts the most was London. We probably deserved to win London and lose um, Beijing, if if I'm being, like, you know, with a bit of reality um, with the whole thing. But, um, yeah, we hadn't been behind in the whole tournament in London and, and then that, that final we just got behind by a couple of points and we just couldn't get it back and, Canada took out took took the mantle there, but I mean it was it was pretty pretty incredible that we played them in three finals and you know spanned eight years and you know it was just a always just an unbelievable battle and I think for as good as Patty and 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 Joey were I, their lows were unbelievable um, you know Stroudy and very often those boys like you know. You'd look at the stats and you know, you go, shit, they've had 20 to 30 points, 20 points, 25 points between the two of them. And, and they just 
yeah, they just they just knew their role and um, they played so well. And it was so hard to try and you know combat Pat and Joey that you know then all of a sudden you had these little one one and a halves that would just you know do damage to you. So they were that was I suppose they were the ones that you know really showed what Lowe's could do if you gave them an opportunity and 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 structured some of your your um, offense towards them. Sure. Cool. Okay. Here's a Mark. I'm going to hop forward a little bit on these questions because one yeah, of them makes yeah. sense to me right here. The question we have from Tom Smith is Do you think your 2008 team would beat the current Paralympic champions? How do you see that going? It's a bit of a, a bit of a contrast of styles, but I'd be interested to see what you think. I think you have to back yourself. Oh, well, I think we did beat them, didn't we? I think, I think they, those boys are starting out Joshy Turak and Matt Scott. I, mean, I, <laughs> I was going to say. Think- I think we did beat them, so I think that answers your question. No, cool, fair enough. Hey, that, no, in all seriousness, no, that, 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 that American team at the moment, they're, they're bloody good. Um, yeah, any one of those boys gets off the chain, you know, Steve Sirio, Mikey Pay, you know, Jake, you know, Josh, you know, like they can all shoot the ball um, and, they've all, yeah, and they're all mobile and stuff. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it is, a, it is a real different aspect. But what I will say is this, is that, you know, Mikey Hartnett, Brendan Dowler, um, and Nick Morris, you know, but but those lows that we had, Tyke Simmons, um, they for one point players, they they played above their points and they could defend, you know, they could defend well above their points. And and that's what gave us the advantage is the fact that those fellas could go out and you know, Mikey could lock down a four and a half, you know, full court and um, you know, just go to town on him. And we just we would target players and say, well, yeah, they might drop 20 on us in the first half, but they're going to have five because they're going to be so wrecked after the, by the time they've played, pushed for 20 minutes. And we prided ourselves on every time someone looked up, they had to push through an Aussie chair. Um, and and that was that was what we based our whole game on. And our lows were, we just had exceptional, exceptionally good defensive lows that could, you know, bat above their, their playing numbers. Yeah, I think it's, you see it, you see the influence of those guys with somebody like Yannick now, where I think the lows in the world at the moment who get a lot of shine are like Abdi, um, Andrew Macek, Ishmael are, who are like offensive geared lows because that's kind of an exception to the rule. But I think Yannick is kind of a lot more, if you could plump for a low who was rock solid and maybe didn't give you Abdi's upside offensively, but also can be on court for 40 minutes and make no mistakes. It kind of comes back to those previous generation of Aussie lows. I think they're kind of the gold standard in that regard. Yeah, and Yannick's taken it to another level with it, right? just how you know, how much of a physical specimen he is as a, yeah, a man. Until he's a two. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah no, he's, uh, he's a one. He's a one. <laughs> oh, for sure. Yeah, he's a real one. We've all got him in every team that you could. You know, oh, yeah. No one's classified well. It's fine. Like anyone who comes You're never going to love a grenade over because you know it's going to come back. But, um, <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, but um, no, that, that, that is true. You know, like he got taught by some of the. Some of the best. And we've got another one coming through, Frankie Binder. I think when he gets an opportunity to get on the international stage, he's going to light things up with, with what he's doing. Awesome. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, uh, yeah, he, he, Yannick has definitely come on. I nearly killed Yannick one day, actually. Um, <laughs> semi, semi final of the World Cup. And, um, we're in a dog fight with the States and they're, they're coming at us. We're up by a bit and they're coming at us. And, what was that big fella with all the tats, the mean-looking bloke? Um, 
Joe Chambers. Chambers yeah, yeah, Joe Chambers. Jeez, he was a scary man. <laughs> and, um, he, 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 I've come off the post like I do, and Yannick's gone to seal me in, and I didn't follow him. And I've gone to post it, and I thought, oh, hot potato, I've just chucked it to Yannick in the keyway. And he's looking at me as he's spun. He's looking at me like, what am I going to do with this? And Joey Chambers has come over the top of him, like ready to kill him. And somehow he's just flipped it up as Yannick does. And bugger me, it, it, it went and it just gave us that four-point buffer that enabled us to get home in the semi over him. But I really thought Joey was going to absolutely flatten him in, in that moment. I, both both Yannick and I, uh, his his life passed by our eyes. That, that's <laughs> That is one of those. I think every basketball player has a couple of moments every so often where they throw a pass because you just on instinct, you see a gap and you're like, this has got to go right now. And as it's in the air, you don't have time to think you before you back. pass it. But yeah. as it's in the air, you're going, I've just committed a murder. Like I have I have led this person to their death. Either you throw someone a pass and then you see a chair in front of them or you see the help coming over. Or you're just like, oh, no. Yeah. Yeah. Joe just so, lying in slow motion, hand up, full palm, ready to swat. But fair is, enough. All right. So um, should we, we have like a question? around the, the last couple of these questions on the medals front? Because Yes. So sorry. I was going to say, we've got this one from Ayaka, who it sounds like is planning to stage a robbery at your house because she said, I read your medals were stolen. Is that true? And where slash how do you keep your replacement medals? You don't have to answer that second. That that <laughs> is absolutely a question asked by someone who sounds like they're planning on stealing your medals, like a hundred percent. Just up there, actually. Um, well, I, I leave them here because my I was playing over in Sardinia, as I told you before, and I had a house in Rome, and um, the bloke that had it before me was um was ex like I think military police. And um, he had a safe in the wall, concreted in. So when we took the house off him, he, um, he showed me the safe. And I thought, oh, yeah, so I put all my medals in that. And um, some people broke into my house and they actually pickaxed it around and pickaxed out underneath it and put a little charge and popped it, but they just destroyed the bloody bedroom and everything like that. Flip. And, um, yeah, so I stole all my medals and I remember getting the photo and, it might have had a couple of bottles that night. I was just so, I just, but you know, I think, well, not I think, I'm not, I'm, why I was so upset um, was because the joy that the medals bring when you take them out and kids get hold of them or people get hold of them and, they put them, and you tell them they can, you can put them, yeah, you know, put them on your neck and they're like, oh, are you sure? And I'm like, you bloody oath. And, you know, they bite them and do that shit. And, you know, like they just, they, they bring so much joy to people. And um, so to have that and, and, and also how many people helped me get to that is unbelievable. Like, yeah, the support I had was huge. And and, and that's that's a symbol for everyone to get, not just me. And um, so, yeah, so when they got thumped, it was pretty, pretty hard to, you know, pretty hard thing to do. But I, you know, why, I'm not sure, maybe because there was a couple of them, I'm not sure, but, you know, to be, get them reissued, I mean, our government got involved here. But, you know, one of the coolest things that happened was that, the, the state media in Italy got hold of it and it was on it was on all the main TV and, and in oh, the really? radio and wow. in the papers and, and they, were, they were literally pleading for for people to give them back. And I and I and I yeah you know, I'm you know Italy's close to my heart obviously my wife's Italian and but that really that stuck home and you'd like to to know that like another country um you know got behind me and and to try and try and get them back and and I think it was that initial drive that 
got you know Australia on board, and and then yeah, I got got them reissued, which was yeah, I'm forever grateful for. That's cool, man. Um, we have another question here from Matt Weil, uh, which is, could you pick a favourite out of your golds? Is there one that means more to you for any particular reason? Yeah, I think Beijing. Um, the, and, and look, I'll be honest with you, I think the World, I think the World Cup's a harder tournament to win. Um, but I, I, Beijing was special because we'd sat down as a group and and as a group decided what we're going to have to do to get better. And that was when we really started to drive our culture and, and all the things off the court that were going to make us better. And, and you, know, cha- you know, challenge and expect to be challenged. And, um, you know, we started to put some, you know, some real um, cool things in place that we could always relate back to. And, you know, little things like, you know, no casters. You know, we pride ourselves, no casters in the paint on D. Yeah, you know, and all this sort of stuff. There was, you know, no dead time, and and that's why you, you know, Australian will come up and hit your chair if the ball goes out of bounds because it's just something that we install that no one, you just don't give an inch. And I think it was all that that the things that we put in place, and then we worked so hard together as a group to to win that to win that game. You know, our whole four year focus was on making the final and winning it, and. I think you just think it's going to happen back then, like you're going to get to the final. But now, you know, it's it's just when you look back on it and you reflect, you, you, I think at the time you don't realise how difficult or how high that mountain is to climb um, and what you've got to put in to do it. Yeah, definitely. Um, so that's all our questions. We've got a couple of things that I guess we'll, we'll bounce through these relatively quickly because I think we've covered a lot of the roller stuff. Um but this was one that interested me as I was watching some of these games back because it strikes me that on your rollers teams, there was a lot of guys who there aren't necessarily obvious comparisons for in kind of the more modern game. I, you might disagree with me on that, having you know been around those guys more and be coaching now. But are there any particular teams or players that remind you of your kind of golden era rollers setup in terms of style of play or individual skills? I think Turkey played similar for a little bit, but I, I think Canada was. I think it was you know two four and a halves against us, and and but in today's today's world, I, you know you don't really see it um, that much. I mean GB with Manning and and I suppose Gaz sort of he plays a bit different, but he's he's a mobile big um, can carry the ball, and I think that's what sort of started to really turn us around was the fact that our, all our four and a halves carry the ball. Troy and and Jay especially were were really really really. Uh, Great ball handlers, um, and they could really push the floor quick and put you under, put the defense under pressure. Patty did the same thing, and, and Joey wasn't shabby either. Uh, Joey had a good three ball on him, so he could extend it um, if need be. So, um, yeah, in today's today's game, I, I suppose there's not a lot because we've gone real that real midpoint lineup. Um, so yeah, I mean Turkey, Turkey had a couple. Iran, I think Iran's team of um, 2018, that that team that finished fourth at the World Cup, yeah, they had a couple of big boys in that that could really push the floor. A couple of three pointers and a four and a half, and you know, um, it's just a shame that they couldn't keep that team together going into to Tokyo because I think they could have had a, a pretty good run at that. So, um, oh for sure, yeah. So yeah, they're, they're probably the closest teams to to that. But when it comes to the mids. Um, I mean, we got some special, you know, Tommy and 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 Sean and um, yeah, a couple of the lads that are, that are there playing, um, you know, 
there's some bloody exciting midpoint players around. Like, look at the states, and I think now every every team has every national has got at least one or two, two and a half, three pointers that are just next level in in skill and ability to play the game. With the exception of Italy, who are still playing like five fours and seven ones or whatever their last European yeah. squad Did, was. What, wasn't it? Was it seven fours they picked in their squad? So, uh, it, well, it was there, was two, there was two three fives, like four fours and a four five, and then a two five, and then the rest were lows. It was nuts. It's like nothing I've ever seen. They should have rang me because I can tell them it doesn't work. Then we tried that. We had 60. <laughs> Went to Rio and we fell short. We just thought we were going to be bigger than everyone. That didn't quite work. So, <laughs> oh god. Um, so, in your time, just like zooming out, in your time from the beginning to the end of your playing career with the Australian national team, would you say your role changed much, or were you just kind of are you just who you are? Like, did you kind of stay the same? Oh, it, it did, and 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 I think that was the beauty about. Our team. Um, when I first started, Troy was a Troy was a man, right? Um, yeah. Yeah, and, and he wanted to dominate, and we let him dominate, and um, you know we just facilitated that. But then we realised it was going to take more than one person to get us get us back on the podium. Um, yeah, there was a time there where I'd play thirty plus minutes a game, and and probably finish a lot of the games with with most points and all that sort of stuff, but. That was my job. I had to hit 30 because I had low ceiling for me all the way down the court. If I didn't get under the <laughs> basket, I wasn't doing my job right. And, and to be honest, they were so good at it, I could have shut my eyes and, and ended up under the basket. So, um, you know, like I've, there were stages where I was the pivot person in it. But then, you know, Jay comes along and, and you know, he started to morph the game and how he went about things. And then there was Sean. So... I think the best thing about it was, um, yeah, and then also we had guys like Tristan Knowles and that that can that are phenomenal scorers. Um, yeah. But there's just we all understood that uh, we had a part to play. I wouldn't say a role. We had a part to play, and um, we were very good at if someone got hot, everything went through them, and um, we just had that belief. And so, but there were stages in in the years that different people took the reins and, and took control and 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 everyone else just got behind that and accepted that that was what we were going to do. And if it meant that your minutes got cut, um, so be it. Uh, that, was, that was just the way we went about it because you just wanted to be a part of that 12 because you knew you were going to be on a, yeah, on a team that was going to go deep and, and play some good ball. Sure. Awesome. Okay, so we've touched a little bit on I think both elements of this you've talked about kind of the evolving team identity between kind of Athens and Beijing but do you want to hit us with a Murray Tressida story of your choice because it's a it's an obligation of this podcast <laughs> oh Maz well I mean I there's two I mean I was really close with Maz I mean obviously he's from my own home city here Perth and um yeah, he really did help me and Jay along at the start um, and put a bit of belief in us and a bit of trust and 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 gave us, you know, a bit of a rain to go at it. But he certainly realised that we were um, just as good off the court than we were on the court, so we had to rein that in a bit and change up our ways. Um, so Justin lost his leg at the same time as me, so we had a bit of synergy right at the very start. We were in hospital together at the same time. and oh, really? um, Yeah, so that, that, that sort of relationship went back a fair way even before we started playing ball. And what a lot of people don't know is Jay won medals in Sydney as a swimmer. Yeah. So he actually transitioned across. He's a phenomenal athlete, Jay. Very determined. And um, 
But yeah, I think the, the one that sticks out, and I'm sorry to say this to, to the GV boys, but Muzz brought GV out to Australia and um, he played the Perth team. Now, problem was, Perth team had me, Mikey, Sean and Jay in it. So we're pretty much playing the starting five of Australia. And I think we had a Roshi at the time. And um, anyway, so Perth beat, beat GB and uh, Muzz didn't like that. So the GB boys were staying up the road and he made them push home. But the big Northwester had come in. So as I'm driving home, the GB boys are pushing up the beach in the dark, up the bloody cycle path in the dark, and the rain's coming in like this and just getting <laughs> flush in the face. And I'm not thinking to myself, oh, you poor bastards like that. That's probably the harshest thing I've seen done in my life. And, um, yeah, at that point I was um, pretty glad that uh, Muzz wasn't coaching us anymore. <laughs> I love that. Just to say, I think, I think the two times that he'd go to fuel up and um, leave the bloody leave the, the the fuel hose in the car and and drive off, and yeah, you'd be looking going, shit, can he actually see the road? So, but, um, <laughs> yeah, for all his quirky quirky things, he was he was a good operator, and he and he knew how to get the best out of people. So you yeah, got to give him that credit for sure. Cool. Okay. Um, so next. Um, so we'll jump to this. Um, you've kind of obviously been, you've taken over your assistant coaching role with the rollers and whatnot. Uh, it's obviously a shift in dynamic for you from just showing up at tournaments and, you know, focus on basketball. So in your kind of view of everything that you're up against, are the young players, be it Australian or elsewhere in the world that you're particularly drawn to at the moment or that you particularly rate? Yeah, so I'm actually also the, um, the head coach of the under-23 team, right, which okay. by the time we get to this World Cup, they could be 40, but anyway, he's getting close by. Hey, well, you um, mentioned Iran a minute ago. Iran have had great success in taking uh, 30-plus-year-olds to... Uh, yeah, I, I hear this a lot. My, my boys <laughs> had a win about that as well, and I'm like, oh, whoever turns up, you've got to beat them anyway. But, yeah, yeah. I hear what you're saying. And... Um, Anyway, the, the, I'm pro-Australia in this in the sense that we've got some phenomenal kids coming through. There's there's probably four or five of them um, that I think at one point in time you'll be watching them. Um, you know, you've got Tom McHugh, you've got uh, Jalen Brown, you uh, Ethan Laird, um, Frankie Pinder. Yeah, there, there's four or five of them that have started at a pretty young age. And, yeah, Ethan's grown up in Queensland and, and mimicked Tom and he's got very similar disabilities. You know, Tommy McHugh and Frankie are with me. And, um, yeah, I, I just think that we've got a, a, a really good team and we're going to be able to – I really hope we can go deep at this 23 World Cup. And and then after that, I'd just love to see these young fellas get over to Europe and, and you know, take that – Australian legacy tradition over to Europe and, and uphold it and keep it going because I think for as much as what they'll take there, they'll learn a, a heap being over there. And, yeah, you'd like to think that, um, you, know, we're, you know, we're building for Paris, obviously, with the same sort of group that we've got now. But, you know, sort of come LA, Brisbane, uh, 32, like these guys are going to be in their element and I think um, going to be doing some special stuff. So, yeah, there is some, you know, there is some, you know, good kids coming through here, and and yeah, I mean, I'm I'm very very lucky to finish basketball and then go get a job. I'm now full time at the West Australian Institute, running a, a squad there, a high performance squad. Uh, I've got 16 athletes, um, so yeah, I get to work and train and play every day um, with these guys, and 
yeah, it's just I'm very fortunate with that, and then it's like a you know a good feeder and into the national teams. And yeah, I really hope that um, these guys can 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 continue on. They got big shoes to fill, but you know, being young, cocky little blokes, they are they're, they're up for the challenge, which is great. So. <laughs> Yeah, watch this space and, you know, watch this space come September. I'm, I'm hoping that, you know, a few of these boats get picked up pretty quick next year for Europe. Awesome. That sounds Happy good. Days. And we will finish with this. We've kind of spoken, talking to someone who's played for so long, um, you kind of, we, we talk about the evolution of wheelchair basketball from a, a few decades ago at this point. Where do you see the game going next if anything if if you have any ideas if you have any i know we spoke about it a little bit in terms of like people shooting more threes and stuff but 10 years time what do you think the game looks like i think quicker i think um quicker and more mobile it depends what these new classification rules do yeah um yeah like i know they're trying to get rid of minimal minimal disability but i think in wheelchair sports the the wheelchair in our classing system evens that out pretty much. Um, I'd also like to see the like that one and a half add-on rule disappear. Um, I, I think you, you you can't you can't add a add more than what you can't be add more than a zero. So yeah, they make the person zero. I, I don't agree with having that extra half point because it takes away from the the one and a half twos in the game, which I think add a lot. So that's personal opinion on that, but. I think it's just I think with the way that the like the the players now are becoming um, just better athletes and with technology in the sense of day to day life um, the accessibility of the game and how much it's grown around the world now um, they're playing it everywhere it's it's amazing every time I look on my phone there's a there's a game going on somewhere where yeah and even though a lot of the places are probably 30 years behind where we are today. The fact that there's more people playing the game, I think it's just going to make it better. And I think the skill-wise, you know, back when I started, that's when stations started and you guys would have done your fair share of U-turns and Christmas trees and all that sort of stuff. The good old Um, days. The the good old days. And, And that stuff's morphed and got better. So I think, you know, I take, take my role, for example, at, at the Institute of Sport. You know, like I, you know, I was given a high-performance coaching job, but I wasn't high-performance. I was, I was an ex-player. But now we've got coaches being upskilled, you know, in, in the scientific side of it. You know, I've got a PhD student doing some stuff, work for us and that now. And, yeah, there's more, more studies being done by university students that are, you know, willing to do their PhD on 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 wheelchair basketball. I mean, how, how cool is that? And, um, yeah, just the training tech, the training technology and the training. What, you know, when I started, you know, I saw a shooting gun. I was like, oh, how cool is that? You know, I just asked asked for one and I got it. So now our guys can chuck a, you know, thousand shots up in the space of half an hour. And I mean, I know everyone else has got them now, but that sort of stuff's becoming the norm. Whereas yeah. before it was like, oh my God, only an NBA player gets to do that. Yeah. So I think, I think that just the training environments that, you know, the DTEs, the data training environments and, and what people have got at their fingertips now is going to make the game a lot better. Awesome. All, I'll, all I'll say to that is if your players are getting a 1,000 shots up in half an hour, you need to slow down the mechanism on that shooting gun because <laughs> that's going to cause some injuries. Man. That's it. No, but you know what I'm saying. I can get volume shooting up and, you know, away yeah, they sure. go. And I don't have to be there, which is even better. Yeah, you don't have to just 
Your days of pulling oh, the ball like, the ring and passing back at people are over. Well, I've become the best rebounder in the world. That's pretty much what I do, stand under a basket. All day and I get shitty if they miss it and I've got to run and go and get it. Yeah. <laughs> right. Cool. All right. Well, that's everything from us, Brad. So we're going to call that a day here. Um, thank you so, so much for joining us. This has been phenomenal. And we hope you've enjoyed being on. You're welcome back anytime, man. Yeah, well, mate, hopefully we we do something special in, in you know sometime soon. You can get me back on then. But hey, thank you guys for having us. And uh, yeah, well done on your on the success of your of your show so far. And um, just stay safe over there with everything that's going on. All right. Thanks, Thanks man. man. Appreciate it. And tell your, do- tell your daughter thank you for her cameo as well. <laughs> yeah, little one. She'll be over there actually going over for three months, a little bugger. So <laughs> I'll be carrying work. So anyway. Awesome. Right. Awesome. Everybody right. listening. Thank you very much for joining us. Hope you've enjoyed this episode and we will catch you again soon. Peace out. Thanks, Scott.